If you're new to mission, uh, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, this is on purpose. It's not that we don't ever take a break to do a certain series over something, but even when we do those, we're typically preaching line by line, verse by verse, sometimes word by word um, through a text. And the reason why is, is that we believe that good, mature, healthy Christians have a healthy diet and view and understanding of the text and context found in all of these scriptures that all point to the person and work of Jesus, that the book the Bible, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, is not ultimately about you, but it is ultimately about God. So, cards on the table here today, uh, Like much like last week and over the course of the next few weeks, uh, the first part is going to be uh, a little bit heavy on Bible study. Um, looking at different things, looking at the aspects. If you've been around mission before, you've heard me say that this is kind of like where I nerd out, because yes, I am one. And... Um, if nerds were cool back in the mid-90s, I've been really popular in school, uh, but they weren't, so I was not. Uh, but here I am before you. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus. You can see on the screen today that we're talking about the title of this sermon. It's called God Dwells. And then we're looking at Exodus chapter 25, 26, 27, and 30. And right now, all of you who are members here are laughing um, because you know me and you know that it's absolutely impossible. Um, and yet, what I'm going to do is, is today um, kind of do a 35,000 foot view flyover of those passages, because uh, when I was telling a group of local pastors here uh, way before this year, I told them I was going to be preaching through Exodus, and they're like, man, really? And I was like, yes. And they're like, are you going to stop after the commandments? And I was like, no. And they're like, oh, it gets kind of crazy after the commandments. Well, uh, to be faithful to the text, we're going to preach all of the text, and hopefully, um, as we enter into Christmas season, uh, that all of this is going to ultimately point to the person and work of Jesus. So, what happens inside the book of Exodus, I'll give you some text and context again, but it, it essentially says the same thing in chapters kind of 35 uh, through 37, and I'll explain why and why that's important. So when we get to 35 and 37, which is like December the 19th, uh, it's our Christmas sermon before our Christmas Eve Eve service on the 23rd, um, I will preach some portions of this text again. All right, so fly over today, and then we'll kind of hit it uh, really specific on ground level when we get to chapters 35 through 37, all right? So don't send me any emails about me skipping passages or any give me dirty looks, all right? Cool? All right. So Exodus chapter 25. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goats, hair, tanned rams, skins, goat skins, and acacia wood oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate, 
And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, when we come to this context of of what this text and its context of inside of Exodus chapter 25, is that it's really important to once again to paint this picture of what is taking place. Again, they've been traveling for some time. They've gotten to Mount Sinai where God promises that he will come and that he will visit with them. That his presence would come in a not general sense, but in a specific sense, and that it would rest upon this hill, and that their mediator, Moses, would travel to the top of that, get a glimpse of the God of the Bible, of Yahweh, and that's where he will declare how they are to live in their covenant vows uh, with him. And so when we come down to this portion of Scripture, remember Moses has kind of been going up and down, up and down, up and down, but he has spoken all of these commands, and as we heard a few weeks ago, is that he, he told them what the covenant was about the Ten Commandments and the civil law and the ceremonial law, all these sorts of things, and the people responded by saying, we'll do whatever God demands of us. We will honor it. We will obey it. And so Moses Um, They make a sacrifice, if you remember this, and they sprinkle the blood uh, on the altar that Moses has made at the bottom of the hill, and uh, also on the people signifying cleansing and uh, the covering of their sins in front of God, and the seriousness of this covenant and the importance of making sure that we do not break this covenant. After doing so, Moses travels now back up to the top of the mountain, And over the next several chapters, it is this dialogue that is happening. And it's important to get this picture, that there are hundreds of thousands and potentially not millions of people at the foot of this mountain called the Israelites, the Jewish people. They're encamped there. There is an altar at the bottom of this mountain that is signified and for them to to worship at and engage in uh, biblical activities in. And then you have the trek up the mountain. And up this mountain, uh, there are places where God has told Moses to bring certain leaders, but that they can only go so far up the mountain. So you got different elders, and I think you have Aaron and, and Joshua, and, uh, or you have different people that are, that are leaders that are staggered throughout this mountain, but they can only go so far, they can't go as far as Moses can go. That's by God's design. So we see inside of this passage here today that, again, life is going on pretty normal at the base of the mountain, but for Moses and the leaders, they're scattered again throughout, but again, Moses is at the top of the mountain speaking with God, intercessing on the people's behalf as God again tells Moses what the next move is. They're going to end up being at Mount Sinai, I believe, for about a year, 11 months to a year, when all of this is taking place. And the Bible tells us that on this occasion, that Moses is up on top of the mountain for about 40 days and 40 nights. 
So you can imagine, again, they have not seen their leader, their mediator is not in close, close proximity to them. He's way away talking to this talking mountain or thundercloud on top of this mountain hearing from God. And so in this, you need to get that. That's why there's the repeating that takes place. Moses hears from God, then he goes to the people, and he tells God exactly what God says. So that's why we kind of get this duplicates within what is taking place on top of the mountain and then later on in the later chapters. Now, when we get to this, the first thing that we see in chapter 25 is that God says for them to do something. And right now, if you're a guest or a visitor or aren't around church very much, you're freaking out because you think I'm about to spend the next hour, two hours, maybe three, uh, talking about giving and the value of giving. And uh, that is a portion of what's taking place here because notice what God tells Moses that he and the people are to do. He says in verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel that they may make or take for me a contribution. All right. This is really interesting that takes place is that God essentially asked for an offering, a financial offering, so that he can do something with it. But notice what he does here in the next statement here. He says, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And then he gives this big long list of all this stuff. Now remember with me, if you traveled along with us in this exodus, that these were slaves. These were people impoverished. They were enslaved by the Egyptians who were monetarily wealthy compared to these slaves. And yet, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 3 that God promises them something. He tells them that when they leave, that they should ask the Egyptians for gold, silver, and clothing. And the Bible then confirms to us that later on, after God sends forth the people and they are let go to go find the promised land or go be in the promised land, then the Bible then tells us as well that as they're leaving, that they ask, and guess what the Egyptians, their enemies do? Give them all their stuff. They give them a bunch of silver. They give them a bunch of gold. They give them a bunch of cloth. Uh, clothes, and all these sorts of things. Now, somehow that was dispersed, and so when we come to this point in time that God is about to do something, that the first thing that he does is he asks them specifically to give from a joy-filled heart. To give from a joy-filled heart. Notice those words, whose hearts, whose heart moves him. All right? So all of this wealth that they did not deserve has been given to these slaves And now God is going to ask for a portion of that, for them to be generous and sacrificial in the contribution of giving of these financial wealth and riches back to the people of God and ultimately toward the building of what's called the tabernacle. But notice the key phrase there, whose heart moves him. God isn't asking for begrudging giving of your money. But rather, it should be the outpouring of a sacrificial heart that you so desire to honor God, be devoted to Him, that out of the wealth of all that He has given you, that you give, as the Bible would say, hilariously toward His work and His mission. However, there is a condition. 
If your motive isn't right in that, if you're begrudgingly giving in the offering plate or to the church or to its mission, then God is saying even way back in Exodus, I don't need your money. I don't need your money. You keep it. You keep it. But if you so understand me and all that I've done, if your heart is, again, right and joyful in contributing to this, then then to give so. Because God ultimately doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. He owns the thou, you know, cattle on a thousand hills, a thousand cows on a thousand hills. He's illustrated as this infinite amount of worth, if anything, if he wanted the most, you know, uh, vibranium, which is the real, you know, mineral found in Africa somewhere. Uh, Avenger fans, anybody? It's extremely expensive that if God wanted that, then he could instantly speak it into existence and he would have gold, uranium, vibranium, platinum, any of those sorts of things. He's coming after, wanting to see, will they obey? Will you obey with a joyful heart? With a joyful heart. Now, he asks for all of these random things, right? They appear to be random to us. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple cloth, all these sorts of things, oils, lamps, of oil for the lamps, spices, fragrant incense, onyx stones, uh, stones of jewels, all these sorts of things. God asked for that. And then he tells us in, what, verse 8, which is the key thesis to this particular area of Scripture, verse 8, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God is going to build something amongst his people. He's going to build what is called the sanctuary, the holy place. He's going to build what's called the the tabernacle and all these sorts of things. So he's asked for people to come alongside of him, his people to, to contribute to the building of this place where God will dwell among them. God instructs Moses to do this. He tells them he's going to, again, build this tabernacle, this structure. And the word tabernacle means essentially a tent. That God says, I want you to give all of this expensive stuff so we can build a tent, and then I will dwell among my people. This dwelling place of God is a place where God could be with his people and his people be with him. See, God, and this is some theological terms for you, it's called transcendence, is that uh, within God's presence is that, that God, again, is not like us. He is holy. He is righteous. He is without blemish altogether. And so we can't fully be in his presence. If we do, then you will die instantly. And yet, God can be near to us. Portions of God, um, areas of God, like um, just different aspects of who God is, but God can't, we can't be in his presence completely, but, but God can portion out himself relatively according to his own plan and to his own nature to, to be near to his people. But again, go back to our text and context. Where is God? Well, God is way up there on top of that mountain, a portion of who God is, an expression of who God is. And remember, what's at top of this cloud? It's a thunderous cloud. There is fire that is consuming, the Bible tells us, on top of this mountain. It is 
thundering and lightning. It's like it's rattling the very ground and foundation of this mountain. It's so holy that general public can't even touch the mountain. Why? Because the Bible says they will surely die. Only God's chosen men can travel up farther. And Moses, again, because he was God's chosen mediator, all the way to the very presence of where God was. And yet God says, I want you to create this tent, this mobile tent, this mobile sanctuary where I can be with my people. See, God is both distant and yet God is near to his people. And this is extremely different than what you will see in all other pagan religions. In other religions, again, two major religions in the world, the the religion of works, which includes Islam, Catholicism, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, all of these things are about how that you can ultimately get to God by being good. And yet the God of the Bible isn't about you trying to get to him because he declares it's impossible for you to do that. But this God who is holy, who is righteous, who is ultimate good, wants to be near to his people. And so he's going to come down the mountain and he is going to dwell in this place. He names this place, again, the tabernacle. And within the tabernacle, there is something called the holy place. And within the holy place, there is something called the holy of holies. So let's go to this first diagram so that you can see what later happens on in Scripture. Inside the Scripture, eventually in the book of Numbers, it tells us that after this is created, that it is placed in the center of their encampments. So if you can imagine that that white circle there in the center of the screen is going to be what is known as the tabernacle, and then you will notice these blue squares that are lined out around it. There are actually 12 of those. Each of those represents one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why is the tabernacle tent in the center of the camp? It was on purpose. It was on purpose to show that all of life that is taking place at the center and the core of life is God, is Yahweh, is his very presence, and is his word. Now, in the blank spot around the tabernacle, that's typically where the priests live, a specific group of priests, I believe known as the Levites, and they were dudes that like played instruments but were like ninjas. They were bad dudes carrying swords. They were priests, they were uh, the, the priests that surrounded this in order to protect, and then the priests, as we'll learn about next week as well, actually worked inside of this tented area known as the tabernacle. Because again, the goal isn't to stay at Sinai forever. The goal is to get where? To the promised land. And so they need something, God has determined that they need a, a makeshift sanctuary, a makeshift tent, this area that as they travel, they would tear it down, set up, tear down, set up, tear down, set up. They must be a church plant, right? And this is what's taking place over and over and over again throughout the rest of the history of this exodus until eventually 40 years down the road, they get to the promised land and then they set it up in the promised land. This tabernacle tent, to put it in perspective for you, after this gets built, is used for 500 years. For 500 years. 
It's not till this guy comes along named David, um, who you may have heard of. He fought this giant. Um, no, you are not David, and no, the giant isn't your struggles in life. That's a whole different story for another day. However, you've learned about this guy named David. He was this ruddy guy. He becomes king. He's God's chosen man, and he was considered to be a man after his own, God's own heart, even though he personally had many struggles. He loved God. And it was during that time of David's reign that he decided that eventually that they would build an actual permanent structure known as the temple. Some of you have probably heard of the temple. It's actually some remnants of what sec- a second temple that is actually found inside of Jerusalem today. Uh, the first temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus is going to foretell that as he weeps for the city knowing that it's going to be destroyed in the future, and that's found in the Gospels. It's not till David's son Solomon is alive that eventually that actual permanent structure was actually built. And then Solomon went crazy, adding all kinds of extra things to it um, that God didn't initially instruct. All right? So when we see this created over these chapters of of 25, 26, uh, 27, it takes a little bit of break of 27 and 28, picks back up in 29 and 30, is that there's kind of this very specific way in which God wants this to be built, all right? So let's go to this next picture here of what this looks like, and quickly I'm going to go into more details in the future, but essentially this is what God is going to ask them to build, It is this makeshift area. Um, Now, initially, what was crazy about this is that our our thoughts may be that this was actually rather big, but it was only 150 feet long. If you can imagine putting in our vernacular and understanding is taking a, a football field, chopping that in half. So you've got 50 yards on this side, and then taking that 50 yards and chopping that in half and forming a rectangle out of it. That's about the size of this entire compound in the center But if they were in need of help, again, they were encamped around the very presence of God. They knew where to go, all right? So in that, the Bible tells us in these passages, if we had time to read them today, that there was a gate, and it was always facing toward the east, and that people would go inside that gate. They would step up uh, to what is known as the bronze altar. At the bronze altar, what they would do is, is that they would bring in an, an animal of theirs, a lamb of goat, and then the Lord makes provision for even more poor people and things, even all the way down to like flour. Uh, the, the poorest of the poor could give a portion of flour. For some people, it was um, like oxen or, or different animals and things based on your economic standards or status. But if you know that you had sinned, what you would do is is that you would go into the tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle, the first thing that you would come to was this uh, bronze altar. You would take your animal that you've been raising up until that point, and you would place your hands on your animal. And you would say, essentially, um, that, that, that this animal has become your sin, that it has absorbed your sin. The priest there working would probably hand you a knife for them themselves, slit the throat of that animal, draining the blood from it. A portion of the meat would go to feed the priest, and then the rest of that would be placed upon this or inside of this burning bronze altar. And the Bible says, anybody like a good cookout? You always know? You step out into your neighborhood and you're like, man, somebody's cooking out out here, right? And you're just wondering where it's at. 
right? Because of the smell, because of the aroma. And the Bible actually says, <laughs> I love good smoked meat. Y'all know me. And it's like the Lord. That's why. And it says in the Bible that this burning smoke grilling was a pleasing aroma to God. Now, the average Joe, that's as far as you got to go inside of this. Again, there's hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people doing this. So can you imagine the amount of blood that is around this place? Could you imagine the jobs of these priests as they're participating in in the cutting up of all of these animals? And what happens? Their hands get bloody. Well, again, that makes the priest unclean. So what must they do? They must go a little bit further to what is called the the Brown's Laver. It's essentially a washing tub where they're to rinse themselves, wash themselves, and purify themselves once again so that they can be in the presence of God. Now, that's as far as some of the priests could go. But if you go on further there into this, what is called the holy place. So it was a tent inside of this tented area. And inside of that tented area, the priest after purifying themselves, could go into this small little room. And inside of this small little room, there was some more furniture that the Bible talks about in those passages, uh, again, that we'll come to. Uh, The first thing that you would see on the left side of the room was it's a menorah. Some guys have maybe seen this around Hanukkah. You'll see this candelabra. Uh, What's interesting about this is as you're moving forward into this area, the more expensive things become. Everything outside is kind of bronze. Once you step into this little bitty tent, if you're able to, that means you have to be a priest, a clean priest, you step into this room and there is this menorah, which is in the shape of a tree. It's got seven candlestick holders in it. And the priest's job every day was to fill that up every morning and every night and light it and make sure that it never ran dry of oil. That's why he's asking for what? Oil. Okay. Now, that candelabra, is, uh, it was made out of one solid piece of pure gold. Could you imagine the heaviness of that, uh, traveling that through the rest of the desert and setting that up all the time? 100% pure gold. Across from that um, was called the table of bread. And on that was typically wine, some sort of bread. Um, and the idea here wasn't in the sense of that we feed God, but what had God been doing to them? this entire time, feeding them. Now, from that, you step a little bit more forward in the priest, and this, you would do this every day as well, is that there would be an, an altar of incense, all right? And in this, it would be constantly, again, burning, and there would be smoke coming forth from this, and you would take the blood of the sacrifices, and you would put it on what is the horns of the altars, And you do this every day, again, as a sign of sacrifice and atonement for the sins of the people. Now, once a year, the high priest was able to step into what was known as the Holy of Holies. Inside that Holy of Holies, there's an ark, there's a box, it's a container. It's made of uh, acacia wood, but on the inside and on the outside of it, it is covered in pure gold. Now, what is placed inside of that becomes really interesting. Eventually, God is going to give Moses some stone tablets, as you guys have seen, right? He's holding up these stone tablets, and they look like the arches of McDonald's, right? And he's holding these things, and it's got the Ten Commandments on it. God will also tell him to do something else. He will tell him to take the staff of Aaron that budded. And right now, you're going, 
What's that story? Well, later on in the Bible, um, because the book of Numbers is also talking about all the elements of what's happening here, is that church people, excuse me, the Israelites got really upset at one of the leaders who was Aaron. This is Moses' brother. And God tells him, all right, we're going to put him to the test. You guys bring all the leaders and all the elders before the people, and because they all carried these staffs, these rods, which was a symbol of authority for them. He says, okay, here's the deal. The staff that I cause to go from dead wood to sprouting again, that's my man. Well, lo and behold, guess what happens? Every, all the elders bring their staffs. They place them before God, or, and, and all of a sudden, God makes this dead staff begin to bloom again. So God says, put essentially what I've taken from death into life and put that in there as well. The last thing that we know that's in there, according to the scripture, is a portion of the manna from heaven. You guys remember that? It's kind of like the frosted flake stuff that God is constantly feeding them um, over and over, and that's placed inside of there. Then the Bible tells us that there's this lid that goes on top of it, and that lid has these two uh, beasts called cherubim on it. And they're kneeling before it to the point to where their wings kind of touch, and it creates this open space. Now, what's interesting about the Bible is that it says that this was all carved, the lid and the cherubim, from one piece of gold. So they had to take in all of that wealth and somehow goldsmiths and things like that form a block of pure solid gold, and then the artisan steps in to carve these cherubim beasts and that lid out of that solid piece of gold. Now, in pagan customs, when you'd see an altar like this, that's where they would usually put a statue of that God in the center of this altar on the lid. But notice, the Bible is going to tell us that there is nothing there. There's no graven image. Why? Because the Bible tells us, don't make any graven image, that the presence of God cannot be dictated to one particular description. So it's empty, and yet it is not. God says this is where my presence or presence or a portion of my presence because again God is everywhere he's omnipresent and yet he can be specifically somewhere and when God shows up specifically somewhere then you know it and so does everyone else around you so God creates this mobile tent this mobile sanctuary a holy place for them to engage in their relationship with them. And in chapter 25, that's how he's asking for these to take place. Now, why does he do this, and why is it described, and why does it look like this? This is interesting. Well, why it looks like this is that if you remember back in the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis, God creates, he speaks, and he creates existence. He creates man and woman. He places them into what? A sanctuary, a place, the Garden of Eden, where he walks with them. His presence walks with them because they are good and he is good and they can be in his presence. They're to be fruitful and to multiply and to see this worship of God take place in this sanctuary on this very earth. But do they bring goodness? Do they bring holiness? No, they bring sin into the garden. And so God removes Adam and Eve from the garden. And yet what do we see 
here in the reflection of this tabernacle and tent. If you do much study on this, you'll see even the way it's designed, the engravements, all these sorts of things, it looks very much like a garden inside of this holy of holies. God is establishing again a safe place where they can be clean, where, where, where he can walk with them, that where he can be with them, where he can commune with them on earth. Once again, that the tabernacle was to reflect the garden of Eden, that this was a space for God and man to again commune. He is overtly trying to tell them, I am with you. I am your God and you are my people. Also, notice what this is a a picture of, that the elements that we have here and the stages of involvement look exactly like what they're seeing firsthand on Sinai. There is only one who can go all the way to the top, Moses, the high priest. From there, there's some leaders that can go a little bit further. From there, there's some people that work out here in the courtyard But we see that even in this very presence in front of them, that God is taking Mount Sinai and he's placing it inside of this temple. His presence is up there on top of that mountain. It is far from us. And then God is going to transition and say, but I am going to fill this place, the Holy of Holies, which is only seen once a year by the the determined by God to be the most holy person that they can step foot in there and, and pay and put blood on it in order to uh, atone for the sins of the people. We see this beautiful picture of Sinai coming down. And again, God saying, I am with you. What we've taken place is, is that we've had this wedding where God has chosen them. I, you are my bride, and the Bible says that you, I will be your husband. So they've had their wedding. We saw in the Ten Commandments that they've had their vows exchanged. But what does every couple need? A home. And the tabernacle becomes that home of fellowship. It becomes that place. This is reflective of what scholars would call the eminence of God. That God isn't this somehow, this deist God who created all things and spun it into motion and has just stepped back. But that the God of the Bible is an intimate relationship with his chosen people. We see in Leviticus chapter 9, I believe, and I think I have a slide of this, of what takes place. Later, and when this is getting built, and after it's, getting, after it's built, listen to what happens. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from the offering of sin, offering in the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. That's the first little portion of that tent. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all people saw it, they shouted and fell upon their faces. 
Notice what happens when all of this is complete, and it's going to take them about a year to build this. On the completion day, according to the scripture, that the very presence of God, this fire, all-consuming fire that is on top of the mountain, comes flying down and lands inside that tent. Because why? God says, I am going to fill this with my presence. It comes bursting forth out of that tent and consumes all of the sacrifices of the people so that every one of them can see it. Later on, when they take this tent and make it into a permanent place out of brick and mortar, Second Chronicles will tell us that at the completion, once again, at Solomon's temple, that the presence of God came down and filled the Holy of Holies, filled this tent of meeting. And what were the people's response? He is good. His love endures forever. Were they fearful of God? Yes, but a respectful fear. The reason why they fell on their faces before God, because he is that good. That he's not this so far distant God that we can't have a relationship with. No, the God of the Bible is a God who is drawn near to the weary, to the poor, to the oppressed. That he is with us, that he walks with us, that he is truly present in the lives of people whom he has saved. If Christ is in you, then God's presence is in you. He is in the church. We see this beautiful picture inside of what is taking place here as God himself comes down for personal intimacy with his people. After it's built, God's presence on type of Sinai goes away. Even to the point this, at this time and space in 2021, we can't even tell you where that mountain is. Why? Because the mountain is insignificant. What made that mountain holy wasn't the mountain. What made it holy was the presence of an almighty God. And now God is among his people. He is dwelling among his people. Now, what does that mean? In the grand scheme of things, what does all this mean? What is this tent? Where all these things that need to take place? All these specifics, and God is going to get down, I mean, to the, 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 the very details of how he wants this to happen. Well, friends, what does all point to? What does the tabernacle point to? The, the tabernacle points to this, is that the physical tent and the physical building is going to lose its significance because Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. That Jesus himself, not to blow it for you for Christmas or anything, but if you've not heard this, O come, O come, Emmanuel. What is Emmanuel? According to Matthew chapter 1, verse what, 23, it says that his name shall be called what? Emmanuel. And in parentheses, in most translations, it'll tell you what that word means. God with us. For hundreds, for thousands of years, God, a portion of God, was found inside of this box. And very few people could ever be good enough to achieve and to actually spend time in the presence of that without fear of death. 
And yet, when Jesus comes on the scene, who is he? He is Emmanuel. He is the tabernacle, and he is so righteous and so perfect and so holy, and yet so God and yet so man that he can physically go from this thing that cannot be touched to a man who spits in some mud, places on the eyes of a blind man. And that person be healed. He has such empathy and compassion. He is the goodness of God incarnated. So he can go to a pagan father and have compassion on him as he sees his daughter who is dead. And this is conjecture, and I've not seen The Chosen, so don't blame me on that either. I hear it's good. I just haven't watched it. But I just conject that, that Jesus, in that moment, looking up at this pagan man and saying, don't worry, she's just asleep. And what happens when the presence of God fills that room? And then Jesus says, get up. What does she do? She gets up. Later on in the book of John, and I've got a slide for this as well. In John's gospel, I read a portion of this uh, last week. He says this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his people did not receive him, but to all who died received him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, you've heard it many a times, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory and the glory of his only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I underlined and bolded that word dwelt there. Because in the original language, guess what the word dwell means? One way of looking at it, it says the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. It also translates to be the word tabernacles. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. With the picture that we're seeing inside the book of Exodus and then inside the new temple that is built is ultimately fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. God has always wanted to be with his people. He's always wanted to be amongst his people. He did not need Adam and Eve. He does not need us. He is in perfect relationship within the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But he has chosen to want to, to desire to be in communion and fellowship with his creation. But sin has broken it, causing him to be himself. He must separate himself. And yet, what has he been doing over and over and over again since Genesis chapter 3? It's pursuing his bride, 
pursuing his people. And in the Old Testament, it gives shadow after shadow after shadow after shadow, all culminating and ultimately pointing to who? Jesus, the Word of God, the tabernacle of God, the true presence, the incarnation. If you want to see God Almighty, then look to Jesus because he and the Father are one. You can't. That's why our Muslim friends are wrong. Jesus is not just a prophet. No, he is God. And to cease to believe that God or that Jesus is not God is to cease to believe in the God of the Bible. Jesus is God. And when he is present, it changes everything. His power, his fire, it is all consuming that where Jesus goes, the presence of God is. So that's why he can again heal the blind, resurrect people, but most importantly of why he can save people's lives, which is the ultimate healing that all of us need, is that. We see a picture of this in Revelation chapter 21-3. When it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Again, who is this written by? The same guy who wrote the book of John. John also writes the book of Revelation, and he's using the same terms over again. Behold, the tabernacle place of God is with man. And who is that? Is Jesus. Without freaking you out, can we take just a moment to just consider that if we are in Christ, then Jesus is in here. Because you are in here. The very presence of God is here if there are people who are in Christ is here. Why? Because of what the Bible tells us. This is why Paul would tell us, and we got a slide for this one. Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my tabernacle among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Is that not a reflection of all that we've seen in the book of Exodus? I am their God. They are my people, and I'm not some Zeus or Apollos that wants to just be appeased by them so that I can bless them, which is a prosperity gospel. It is not the gospel of the scripture. The gospel of the scripture is that I will be their God, and I will know you, and you will know me that his temple has flesh to it. Jesus is going to say in this and experience in this inside the scripture that if Jesus is the temple, the presence of God, where does the Bible say that Jesus is? Well, Jesus is a way preparing a place for us who are in Christ. And yet... The presence of God is in you, Christian. Some of you need to hear that this morning. The presence of Almighty God is in every one of you, every person in this room that believes. I'm going to put him on the spot. I didn't ask him to do this. Nick, will you come up here? Didn't he do a good job this morning? Thank you. 
Sorry to embarrass you. Okay. But this is what I this is what I want you to get and understand. If our brother Nick is a Christian, Jesus is in you. Think about that for a minute. What was resting on a mountaintop thousands of years ago is inside this brother who's eating your food at your MC, who wants to be an engineer for the glory of God, because it takes God to do engineering. Be blessed. Get good grades. Do you guys get that? That the fire of God, the presence of God, and how do we see this? In the book of Acts, do we not? As they prayed, a group of 120. As they're held out in the top of an upper room. In, where? In Jerusalem. The brick and mortar temples down the road. But where is the presence of God? Resting in the hearts and lives. Gospel power is in you. Now, Nick is not a God. I didn't say that. It's what the Mormons will teach you. It's not the Bible. But we're the temple, the tabernacle now of the presence of Christ. And every day, Nicholas and Eric and all of you who are in Christ, we have a fighting drift toward forgetting that Jesus is in us. And his Holy Spirit, his power, his blessing, the gospel of Jesus is, is inside of you. The resurrecting power of God is inside of you, Nick. So be a man who is without fear. Be a man who pursues after that God. Because he has not left you. He has not forsaken you. And the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection is a tangible, powerful presence of God that is resting in you. He is with you always. He sees you. He knows you. And he invites you to know him as well. Isn't that powerful? Sure. Let's not forget that. Thank you, Nick. If you are in Christ today, that same power rests in you. His presence rests in you. Why? So that we can do what he has said from the beginning in our, our family tree, that we're to be a blessing to the nations in living in such a way that the Israelites refuse to do but that we as the church pick up the mantle of living in such a way, lifting Christ in such a way that he would do what? Draw all people to himself. The church is a city. It is a light. Not this, won't let Satan blow it out, right? But it is a city on a hill, burning brightly. It is a lampstand for what? for the glory of God so that we live in such a way that reflects
the very presence of Jesus, his Holy Spirit, indwelling in us and in you. Is he there? Let's pray.